Good morning. Would you please stand, uh, if you are able, to honor the word of the Lord as I read from Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. You foolish Galatians, who has hypnotized you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was vividly portrayed as crucified? I only want to learn this from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now going to be made complete by the flesh? Did you suffer so much for nothing, if in fact it was for nothing? So then, does God supply you with the Spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Even so, Abraham believed God, and it was counted as righteousness. Thank you. You may be seated. Thank you, Mary Lynn, uh, for reading scripture. And if you have your Bibles, we are in Galatians chapter number 3 as we continue our study through the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter number 3, and we are uh, looking at this uh, opening section here today. And I hope that you are having a great uh, Sunday morning. Um, For some of us, spring break starts uh, this week. Uh, For others, uh, we have to go to work, but, uh, but we're glad that you're here today. Uh, back when I was growing up, uh, I lived in eastern North Carolina, and uh, we lived in the middle of nowhere, uh, two and a half miles down a dirt road. Uh, we were the first house down that dirt road, very rural. Uh, there was no lights, no street lights, nothing. Uh, uh, there was a creek that ran behind our home. We were in the woods. It was, uh, I loved it. It was, we could go do whatever we wanted to. Uh, But right before you got to the house, the road kind of turned and went down a hill, and our house sat there at the bottom of the hill. And and I said eastern North Carolina because, well, uh, one year, and I remember this uh, very vividly, it was, I was probably 10, 11 years old, uh, and it snowed in North Carolina at Christmas, and we had a white Christmas. Uh, I was very excited because we didn't get it very much. Uh, but my aunt and my cousin, who were down visiting, decided they would head out, you know, uh, the next day. And the problem was uh, they couldn't get up the hill, like the, up the road. It was a dirt road. It wasn't plowed. Uh, in North Carolina, a half inch of snow shuts down the state. Uh, you guys, what you see in grocery stores now, that's what it is every time there's a snowstorm in North Carolina. Like the, the shelves are empty. Everyone's just panicking. Yeah. Uh, but there's no plows. There's no salt. Uh, but they still decided they needed to head home, and so the problem was the road was covered. And so they got in their car, and they would start up the hill, and then we'd watch their car just back right back down the hill. And so they would back up a little bit more and get a running start and start up the hill, and then they would just back right back down the hill. And they were getting nowhere. Finally, uh, she attempted it a few more times. Finally, she, uh, my dad said, you know, let me see if I can do it. And so he backed it up, and he took off, and he slid it back down. He took it, and finally, after about four or five attempts, he finally made it to the top. And you could watch it. We were, I remember watching it as a kid. The car is like, you're like, go, 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 go. And everyone's like, yeah, it's going to make it. It's going to slow down. Come on, you got it. You got it. You're like, you're hoping that it would dig in, and then it would just slide back down. 
and you could see the frustration on my dad's face. And finally, they made it to the top. Now, what I didn't know was my cousin, she was, she was eight, and the entire time she's screaming in the car, crying because she thought this was the end. They're never going to get out. It's going to, the world is going to end at this moment, uh, <laughs> which was just adding to the whole drama. Have you ever been in a car that's been sliding out of control? Can we say America today? No, no, no. Uh, I had a five-speed manual car uh, in high school, and I hated stopping on the inclines, you know what I'm talking about, where you're sitting still, but you have three pedals and two feet, and you got to be able to let go of the brake and push the gas and let go of the clutch, and the whole time your car's rolling backwards, and you're like, oh, no, 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 no. I always, you know, was like, oh, I need to do this very quickly. Uh, this idea of sliding backwards sometimes it's a Christian word, right? Concept of backsliding is something that is mentioned when it comes to Christians or spiritual walks. Uh, people get that term from the King James Version of, in the book of Jeremiah. It talks about uh, the people have backslidden away from God. Uh, in modern translations, it's translated as apostasies. Uh, basically, that people have become apostate or they're refusing in their, or they're stepping back uh, from their beliefs. And the concept of backsliding is not just lim limited to these grossly sinful acts. Uh, Christians can fall into false teachings or uh, what we would call the error of extremes. Over the last few weeks, we've talked about that, that the Christian journey is like a road and there's two ditches on either side of the road. And that if we're not careful, we might fall into one ditch or the other. The ditch of lawlessness or the ditch of what we call legalism. That Christians should be mindful, remain balanced and healthy in their Christian walk. And so the letter to Galatians uh, is about keeping mindful. Uh, specifically about of sliding into one of those two ditches. And instead, having a gospel-rooted living, one that centers on the gospel to remain balanced. So the Galatians had to willingly, or excuse me, I should say, they had willingly and deliberately slid away from the grace of the gospel into an area that we call legalism. And so now Paul, he's wrote his first two chapters so far, and he's talked about, he's defended his apostleship, uh, he's, he's wrote this autobiographical section about his life, and now in chapter 3, he turns his attention really to the Galatian people, and he asks them some very uh, pointed or piercing questions. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, I pray today that you would open our hearts. Lord, open, uh, help us to understand your word. God, we know that salvation is by faith, uh, by faith only. And Lord, we trust in you uh, for, for that. But God, I also pray that you would help us as our walk uh, continues to live by faith. Uh, it is in your precious name we pray. Amen. So as you noticed in chapter 3, the first phrase is, Oh, foolish Galatians. Like, like, Paul doesn't just beat around the bush anymore, right? Uh, like, he's just like, he's going to call them what they are. To kind of help us get the mindset of what Galatia, the people in Galatia are, are really doing here, I want to give you this kind of hypothetical uh, situation. Let's suppose that I wanted to start my own business, okay? So I go to my friend named Ken. You may know Ken, who's a successful businessman, right? Uh, and I go get some business advice from him. And I lay out my business plan, and he says, you know what, Jay, that's not going to work. Uh, that's doomed to fail. You've got to make some big changes here. 
but I don't listen to them. I am determined that I'm going to do my own thing, and so I do. And uh, I, get a, I go to the bank, I get a loan, I start my business, and the business struggles. Pretty soon, it's going down. And I work hard to keep it afloat, but it's going worse and worse. So I go back to Ken, and I say, Ken, I've got big problems here. And he says, Jay, I told you it's not going to work. You've got to abandon that plan, and you've got to do this. And so I listen to him, but I'm really hard-headed. You couldn't imagine that, right? Anyway, I decide I'm really not going to make the change. So I just tweak this or tweak that, and I, I'm going to take a little bit of what Ken says, but I think I can make it work. So this is what I do, and I make some minor changes, and guess what? It's still going down, down. Finally, I'm in a point of desperation, and, I, and I, I'm in a lot of trouble, and so I go back to Ken, and I say, I'm, I, I'm broke. I'm like, this is it. I, I know what I did. I tried it. Now I'm in trouble. And Ken looks at it and says, yeah, you're in trouble. This is what I told you before. You've got to abandon your business plan. There's no way that can possibly work. And so you're going to need to change your entire way of thinking. You're going to have to do it this way. Now I'm broken enough to listen. So I completely abandon my way and I do his way. And you know what? Things start working. After all, he's successful. And the business starts coming up out of the hole. And pretty soon it's going well. But then something strange starts to happen. I start thinking, you know, I know my way didn't work back then, but now the business is really going. It's going well. And so I think that now I can implement my ways. I can do my thing again. And so I do. And down the tube it goes. And so I go back to Ken and I say, this is what I did. And Ken looks at me and says, you're an idiot. Do you have mental problems? Like, like, now knowing the circumstances, do you think Ken was being too harsh with me at that point? No. And when you understand the circumstances of Galatia, you understand Paul is not. You know, sometimes we look at this and go, whoa, Paul, chill, dude. Oh, foolish Galatia. What is wrong with you? Like, like Paul is not being too harsh when he calls them foolish. Actually, some translations use the word idiots. Well, I'm not going to go there. But foolish. Uh, the Galatians had done spiritually the same thing that I had done hypothetically in my business. Their mistake, though, was much more serious. And therefore, their situation calls for this very strong rebuke. It's almost as like Paul is saying, how could you do this? I can't believe the report that's come to me. Like you, I, Listen, I was there with you with Barnabas. We preached Christ, his crucifixion. Back in chapter 2, we read that. And I said, that was the way of salvation. And now, you're telling others that, that you're believing something different. That another gospel, which in a way is not a gospel at all. You're believing that there's something more than Jesus. And he says, more than Jesus? Come on, you've got to be kidding me. So let's take a look at what the Galatians were doing. Uh, and so I titled the message, Acting Foolish. So what were the Galatians doing? First of all, they were focusing on something other than the cross. Look at verse 1. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Just as Ken would have called me foolish for not listening to his business ideas, Paul calls the Galatians foolish people. Now, the Greek word there is 
a, 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 yeah, a noitas, which basically means this, without thinking, all right? Uh, some of the definitions would be not reasoning through a matter with proper logic or acting in a mindless, dense way or being junior high age, okay? Sorry, guys. Because they're thinking in such a way that is not using their minds. Foolish is a great interpretation. Jesus actually uses the same words, the same word, when he's talking to the disciples on the road to Emmaus after his resurrection. Uh, and he's telling them, hey, why are you so sad? And, and they're talking about, well, the, Jesus is dead and, and we don't know what to do next. And he's like, are, why are you acting so foolish? Are you not thinking that the prophets talked about Jesus suffering and dying? And then he talks about all about that. So Jesus uses the same word there to refer to someone who's not thinking clearly. This is a word that means, hey, I know the truth, but I'm just going to act unreasonably or irrationally. So he says, oh, foolish Galatians, you know the truth, but you're choosing to act differently. Then he uses another word. Uh, who has bewitched you? Bewitched is only found here in the New Testament. And as I'm studying this word, the same song is in my head. Do, 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 No, that's not bewitched. That's genie. I don't know. That's before my time. Okay. The word bewitched is only found here in the New Testament. And this is what it means. It means to cast an evil spell on with injury on, or wish injury on someone, then I love this one, to give the evil eye to. Every mom in here knows what the evil eye is. Every kid in here knows what their mom's evil eye is. No, uh, the ancient Greeks actually uh, were very accustomed to and afraid of this idea. They were afraid that a spell could be cast upon them by an evil eye. It was thought to, to work in a way that a, a serpent could hypnotize his prey with his eyes. Some translations actually, instead of using the word bewitch, use the word hypnotize. One theologian, uh, Bruce, stresses this nuance when he talks about it being hypnotized. He says the way to overcome the evil eye was simply not to look at it. And in using this phrasing, he says, is using the, the picture bewitched. Paul is encouraging the Galatians, hey, your eyes have wandered away and they're looking on something they shouldn't be. And instead, keep your eyes always steadfastly upon Jesus. And so Paul's using the phrase to say, hey, your mind has been clouded, acting foolish. It's so biblical that it's almost like there's a spell on you. Not literally, of course. But figuratively. And so his point is this. Only somebody under the influence of a spiritual power would abandon the doctrine of salvation by grace through faith. Why would you abandon that? It doesn't make sense that you would walk away from this. Which shows also how influential those Judaizers were. Remember we talked about those a few weeks ago? That those people that said it's not just salvation by faith, but you also got to be circumcised. You also got to follow this law. They're very influential. And Paul says, they're bewitching you. They've turned you away. And so he says, who has done this? 
And then he says, it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Paul mentions, hey, this is the problem. Before your eyes was this public portrayal of the crucifixion of Jesus. It doesn't mean that Paul is claiming that the Galatians were actually standing at the actual crucifixion. All right? The phrase public portrayal uh, is basically talking about his teaching. Okay? It simply means that he was there teaching and he was teaching clearly the crucifixion. And so that phrase, public portrayal, uh, has a deep meaning. It demonstrates that, that, that they had been given the truth so convincingly in their mind's eye that they saw it for what it was, that this is the truth. Okay, so, so Paul is, is, is speaking to them and he's saying, hey, listen, I, talked you, I, I taught you so clearly that Jesus was crucified. It's almost as like as I painted a picture for you that you could see it. I mean, I, I, I remember as a child sitting in Sunday school and, and hearing teachers talk about the stories of the Bible and how they could do it in such a way that it was just so clear that it became a picture in my mind. I had a pastor uh, in college who would do the same thing with, with simple teachings or, or parables or, or some of Christ's words or some of the New Testament. And he could do it in such a way that it was so clear and so easy to understand that it just sort of, sort of came alive in me. Paul says, listen, I talked to you about the crucifixion of Jesus in such a way that it was so clear. His message was Christ crucified and he emphasizes crucified to say hey this was the most important i want you to know the most important thing i posted it like a decree in the city i painted it like a clear picture i wanted to make it as clear as possible and that is christ crucified that he gave himself for your sins and because of that salvation comes through faith in him only. That's what Paul was trying to get at. That's what Paul was, was, that's what his message was throughout his missionary journeys. Over in 1 Corinthians 2, he says, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Throughout his life, Paul says it over and over again. I want to know Christ. I want to preach Christ. To the Ephesian elders, he says it in Acts 20. I don't count my life of any value or as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Eugene Peterson writes it this way. He says, the single overwhelming fact of history is the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. There is no military battle, no geographical exploration, no scientific discovery, no literary creation, no artistic achievement, no moral heroism that compares with it. It is unique, massive, monumental, unprecedented, and unparalleled. Paul says, we preach Christ crucified. Oh, foolish Galatians, why have you let your eyes get off of the truth? And that is Jesus Christ crucified. So I ask you this morning, where are your eyes focused? In the midst of a world pandemic, when the world around you is going crazy, where are your eyes? 
Are they focused on the cross? Are they focused on Christ crucified? Is your salvation in Him and Him alone? Or are you trusting in society? Are you trusting in the world? Are you trusting in the government? Are you trusting in something else? Do you understand? There's nothing that can separate you from the love of Jesus. But what if we die? So we die. And you know where we go? We go to heaven. I'm not saying that we should go out and lick each other's faces, but I'm saying, listen, what can they take away from you? For me to live as Christ, to die is simply gain. Paul wants the Galatians to remember the picture so plainly that he showed to them. See, one way for the Galatians to step out of that legalism ditch is to return your mind to the cross, realizing that there's nothing you can do to earn merit with God. And placing your trust in him alone for eternal life removes the idea of legalism from justification. But you're like, okay, I get it. I'm a believer. I believe in that. I can't work my way to heaven. I believe in Christ's death on a cross. Great. But I still struggle with my Christian growth. How do I get a better understanding of what it means to grow in Christ? We'll keep reading. So they were focusing on something other than the cross. Secondly, they were forgetting to live by the Spirit. Look at verse 2. Let me ask you only this, Paul says. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Paul talks about this idea of the Spirit. And what he does is he takes, in verse 2, talks about what you've been given in the Spirit, and in verse 3 talks about what you now have in the Spirit, and verse 4 kind of results from that. The Holy Spirit is mentioned 18 times in this letter, and it plays a very big part of Paul's defense of the gospel. Okay, uh, that, that really in what he's saying and what we know as, as believers, that the presence of the Holy Spirit is only the real evidence of conversion in the life of the believer. Romans 8 tells us this. He says, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ, notice, does not belong to him. One clear result of being a Christian is you have the spirit. And so Paul asks the question in verse 2, and it really lays out these two options here. He says, did you receive the Spirit by works or by faith? Was your salvation by works or by faith? Now, they're not denying that Jesus died on the cross for their sins, but he says what the Judaizers are doing is they're adding to that. Like it's not just faith, but it's faith plus circumstance. It's faith plus something. And Paul says that's not the way it is. He says, how did you receive the Spirit? Think back to your moment of salvation. How did you receive the Spirit? Was it because you felt like you worked for it? Or was it because you believed by faith? And so he uses that phrase there, receive the Spirit. And he uses that as a phrase to describe salvation. Over in Acts chapter 11, Peter talks about this same idea. Acts chapter 11, he's talking with uh, Cornelius. This is a Gentile. And he's talking with his family. And he says, as I began to speak 
the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. He said, hey, I'm speaking the message of the gospel, and as I'm speaking, what we can logically say is they started believing, and the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us, like just like the early disciples did. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then, notice, God gave them the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Who was I that could stand in God's way? Peter preaches the gospel to Cornelius, and as he speaks, he says, Cornelius believes, and the Holy Spirit descends on him just as he did to other people. So this idea of receiving the Spirit talks about being saved. Now, when a sinner believes in Christ, when you and I believe in Christ, several things immediately happen. Several things. Uh, there's one called born of the Spirit. There's a spiritual birth that takes place. Jesus talks about this in John chapter 3, uh, where he says, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. There is a spiritual birth. Over in Ephesians, it says, you who were dead in your trespasses and sins, hath he made alive together that we were dead. Now we are born of the Spirit. Another place you find this is in 1 Corinthians, where Paul talks about being baptized by the Spirit. That is, that you're now a part of the spiritual body. Notice 1 Corinthians 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one, so it is with Christ. For in one Spirit we are all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. That as a Christian, you become part of the body of Christ, and that each one of us plays an integral part of that body. You're baptized in the spirit. Finally, in Ephesians, it talks about that you're sealed by the spirit. That is, when you become a believer, the Spirit who enters you becomes the guarantee that one day you will be sharing in the glory of Christ. Ephesians 1. In Him also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and you believed in Him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of what? Our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. So that when you become a Christian, you're born of the Spirit, you're baptized by the Spirit, and you're sealed by the Spirit. Basically, the Spirit is now part of who you are. As someone who believes in what Christ has done, and who has fully trusted in that for salvation, that person immediately has the Holy Spirit. And Paul says, where did you get that from? Did you get it from works, or did you get it from faith? But that's not the end, right? As Paul reminded us last week in chapter 2, verse 20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. And that the life I now live is not my own. It's the very life of Jesus that's living within me. In other words, I've received the Spirit, and now what I receive is a new life from Christ. And I receive very the, Spirit, uh, the very Spirit of Jesus within me. And so Paul is saying, hey, how did you get that? Was it by the law? Or was it by faith? Are you saved by what you do or what Christ did? 
And as we get through the middle section of the book here, every verse, every argument ultimately makes its way back to that. Grace or the law. The very heart of the gospel is grace or law. But of course, Paul knows that the Galatians believe by faith. And after all, he was there. He, he, he went through that region with Barnabas. And that's why he says, hearing with faith. I know you did this. I know that when you first believed on Christ, it was simply by faith. Because that's the message I told you. And this is why he gets so upset. <laughs> this is why he, twice, because now in verse 3, he says, are you so foolish? There's the same word again. I didn't teach you the works idea. But now you're so focused on that and you're, you're, you're so caught up in that. So I call them foolish. See, the Judaizers come along and they tempted some to start changing their thinking. In order to truly be saved, you need to do this. You need to do this. This is a different part. It's not just work salvation. They would say it's a works sanctification. You might continue to hold on to your salvation by faith, but you're going to start looking at sanctification by works, which is what Paul talks about here in verse 3. Are you so, why are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, your salvation started in the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? See, those false teachers come along and they say, hey, even though you've been saved by faith, now, you know, okay, in order to bring it to completion, you have to do this and this and this and this and this. And Paul says, how could the law, which was unable to accomplish salvation, now bring you holiness? Are you, being perfect? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Now, the word flesh here uh, is Paul's word that he uses. He's not just talking about our physical body. He's talking, he's referring to something that is uh, uh, without spirit or, or, or something human, something without the uh, uh, grace of God attached to it. Over in uh, Romans chapter 8, he uses it this way. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, living according to the flesh, you will live. And several more times in the book, Paul's going to contrast this idea of flesh and spirit. Okay? And so what he's saying in verse 3 is, hey, if, if physical life is limited to the natural functions of the physical body, how is it that the Galatians think that they can operate on a spiritual level while depending on their own human abilities? Why do you think that you can be perfected by the flesh? And I would say this, to live by the flesh means to depend on the resources and abilities of us. To live like an unbeliever. To live by the Spirit is to depend on the resources and abilities of the Holy Spirit. Whom God gives by grace. And in both of those, to live by means to have dependence upon. So the question becomes, what are you depending upon? The answer to that question reveals whether a person is living by the Spirit or living by the flesh. 
The reason that Paul could tell the Galatians had reverted to the life of the flesh is because he knew what they were depending on. What are you depending on in fleshly living? See, the point of the verse, and what Paul's trying to say is, you must go on in the Christian life the same way you started. You, you began by believing. You began by faith. You began by, by grace through faith. Like, the, there's that. It's not anything that I've done. It's everything that Christ did. And Paul says, that's where you started. That's how you continue. That's how you, you live by the Spirit. Because you go on relying on the Spirit. The problem that the Galatians had fallen into was this false teaching that you began the Christian life by faith and now you grow in the Christian life by works. That is by drawing powers in yourself to make yourself have a contribution towards your salvation. And I would say that problem is very much alive and well today. Okay. Okay, so a Christian realizes he's justified. He's declared righteous now, right? Fully on faith. I think we should realize that our sanctification is by faith too. Our growing is by faith too. Because what happens so many times is we start sliding into that legalism ditch. That ditch that says, I have to earn merit with God. And so I have to do this and I have to do this and I have to do this in order for God to be happy with me and for God to look down favorably upon me. But... But wait, Pastor, what about verses like Ephesians 2.10? We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Or what about Philippians 2, where it says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Isn't that works? Look at, what about James 2? For by faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. My question is, what do you see in those verses? Is it works? Is that what we see? Well, yeah, it says it works. But do you understand how all those passages tie in beautifully here with Galatians? Let me show you a verse from Galatians that we've already studied. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh... I live by faith in the Son of God. See, those works, those works that those other passages talk about are because Christ is in you. And when he's in you, it gives you a new identity and it gives you a new direction. And so that word sanctification, that means make holy, to separate from sin, that the Bible teaches, hey, you're already holy. You have Christ's righteousness placed on you. You, you have been made perfect. But it also teaches that you're being made holy day by day through the work of God in your life. You're growing. But So, well, if he's doing it then, right? Do we just sit back? Okay. Let it happen. Right? Let, you just do it. God, you're going to make me holy. doesn't matter what I do, so I'm just going to go about my day. No, you don't just sit back and let it happen. Notice that from Galatians 2.20 again, where it says, the life I now live. 
Not the life that I sit back and watch happen. It speaks of living, but living in the power of the Spirit. And so I go on living, and every decision that I make, I make by the power of the Spirit. I make by the being filled with the Spirit. My conversations, my actions, my thought, my life is all by the Spirit working in me. But wait, what about when I fail? Then when I fail, I recognize I've fallen short. I've failed. I confess that sin, and I learn from that sin. I just give up. Chuck Swindoll said it this way, grace is the way to life and the way of life. And so now my actions are driven by the Spirit so that I don't do things because I have to do. We've got to do this. We've got to go to church on Sunday. We've got to be part of this. We've got to be part of that. And I'm not doing them because, well, that's the Christian thing to do. We have to do it this way. We have to do it that way. No, it's because the, the Spirit is at work in me. And I realize that these actions are the result because I'm in Christ. And I'm a new creation. And I have a new direction. And so now the result is the Spirit is, is working in me to do these things. Not because I have to or not because they're the right thing to do. I do them because my desire is to do them. I'm a new person. So he gets to verse 4. And he says, did you suffer so many things in vain? If indeed it was in vain? One view of verse 4 is this built-in kind of implication of this issue at this point in Paul's thoughts here, that as you mature in Christ, then it comes through the combination of God's supply of the Spirit and suffering. See the word suffer there? Basically, what he's saying is that God's process of bringing us to maturity requires both the Spirit and suffering. Which means that if the Spirit is control of the believer... He, he, what he will do is he will cause them to do what Jesus would do in their life, and, and then that's going to bring about suffering because that's what Jesus had resulted in his life was suffering. And it means that suffering without the leadership of the Spirit would be what Paul says here, in vain. So Paul could very well be teaching the Galatians that suffering was inevitable for those who walk by the Spirit. If you walk by the Spirit, you will suffer. He says that in first, uh, excuse me, 2 Timothy chapter 3. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Not might be, but will be. And so he's teaching them suffering, in order for it to have its intended maturing impact, has to be endured with faith in the Spirit. So furthermore, Paul himself... If you study this in Acts 14, you'll find Paul also faced suffering in Galatia. Uh, he and his companions suffered horrifically by the Jews. Uh, read Acts 14 and you'll see this. He was even, uh, outside of Lystra, I believe, he was even stoned and left for dead. And no doubt, some of that same persecution probably spilled over to the Galatian believers after Paul left. However, if you have a uh, ESV, you might notice that the suffer word has a footnote with it. And that footnote is, it says, uh, instead of the word suffer, it says experience. This is the, uh, the word for suffer here is the Greek word pasco. 
Okay? Uh, and most of the time, it's translated suffer or endured. Uh, what it literally means is experience a strong feeling or passion or have heavy emotions. And most of its use involved this, this strong feeling of suffering. However, there are also times when it could be translated experience. And so another translation of this phrase would not be, did you suffer so many things in vain? It might be, have you had spiritual experiences in vain or all without purpose? So when you start studying the context around this, it starts to become maybe a little more clear. There's no mention of suffering or hardship in verses 3 or in verse 5. Which might suggest that the word experience might fit better. So Paul's wondering if all the gifts of the Spirit they had received would amount to no lasting value. Because now they're trying to walk by the law and not by faith. See verses before and after talk of the gift of the Spirit and the occurrence of miracles. And it seems that Paul is asking them, hey, if these spiritual experiences have not had a positive effect on you, then what have they had? Does this mean that we shouldn't suffer? No, I think that there is some merit to the fact that, as Paul says in 2 Timothy, that if you believe to live a godly life, you will be persecuted. But their acceptance of the Judaizers' message, the Judaizers' rules, makes Paul wonder if you learned anything at all. Maybe that's why he calls them foolish. What value is the gift of the Spirit if you strive for perfection through the direction on your own life? You've experienced new life. And, and it's evidenced by salvation, by grace through faith. But now is all of that in vain? Is all of that meaninglessly? Meaningless because you've gone back to the law? Grace is the way to life. And grace is the way of life. Paul says in the previous chapter, Through the law I died to it so that I might live to God. Lastly, so it's getting the focus off of Jesus Christ crucified. Getting your focus off the cross. It's forgetting to live by the Spirit. And the last one is failing to recognize God's gracious work. Failing to recognize God's gracious work. Look at verse 5. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Back in verse 2, Paul used a past tense verb. You did receive. Okay? It's already happened. Now here in verse 5, he uses present tense. He who supplies or he who provides the Spirit. Like it's a continuation of provision. The word supplies means to provide lavishly. It was actually used in marriage contracts to describe the husband's commitment to a Generous support for his wife. Faithfully. Provide lavishly. And so using that picture that God, the faithful husband, caring for his bride, shows a continuous and generous supply, support of the Spirit to the Galatians. And he sees it by working miracles in their minds, in their midst. You don't think God still works miracles today? As I talked about it in Sunday school, he absolutely does miracles today. He absolutely shows us himself. 
That same spirit who came into the believer at conversion continues to work in that believer and continues to work through that believer and works with other believers and the whole body begins to be built up together and the Father continues to supply that spirit in power and in blessing. Works, miracles among you. The phrase among you can also be translated within you. See, those miracles can be happening right here. Those miracles are happening inside of each one of us. Those miracles are directing us because he's, he's miraculously changing us. He's making us more like him, like Christ. And of course, Paul's going to use an example here in verse 6, Abraham. But that's for next week. This morning, I ask you, what is your salvation based on? What is your way to God? Is it by works? Or is it by faith? And if it was by faith, have you lost your focus? Is your eyes on something else instead of Christ crucified? And if your life began by faith, and you received the Spirit of God within you, and you believe by grace... Are you continuing to walk by that? Are you continuing to live by the power of the Spirit? Or are you so bogged down with the works that you find yourself in that ditch? See, today, let us live by grace. The God who gives us the Spirit at salvation continues to give us the Spirit each and every day. But what about the fear? I don't know who holds, I, I don't know about the future of America. Could we all be in quarantine until June? Sure. Spend time with your family, play some games. I don't know, but I know who holds the future. And I know my life. That God has given me an opportunity to be with my family and to minister with my family and to show Christ to others. Live by the Spirit every day. Let's pray. Our Father, this morning we are humbled by Paul's words. God, he said that people were acting without their minds. God, each one of us, Lord, I pray that you will help challenge us to turn our focus back onto what Christ did for us and what our salvation is in. God, I pray that each one of us would take each day and live it in the power of the Spirit. That we would, as the Bible says, be filled with that spirit so that others would see it, that others might know, so that we ourselves could see you working within us, changing us, directing us. God, I pray that you would continue to work in our hearts as we follow you. It is in your precious name we pray. Amen.